it'd be really great if like parkour could I mean personally for me I think it'd be really great if parkour could reach into the deaf communities because they're really tight-knit and I think it'd be really interesting to see like how parkour would be affected by like mm. incorporating like deaf people and their experiences into movement because a lot of it is really relied on like hearing our landings and all that stuff it's there's this auditory element but like there's a lot of things that you can gain by removing a sense i mean that's why we have all these different types of like movement workshops and yeah. and like um, eyes closed drills games. Or, right, yeah silent training exactly it's like when you remove a certain element from your training, it forces you to rely on other parts of your senses. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to learn who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This is episode number 101 with Jade Amber Rogoshki, Deafness, Architecture, and Accessibility. While it's not immediately apparent that Jade Ember Ragoshki is unilaterally deaf, it is a defining factor for her life and work. She shares her experiences with deafness, learning about it, and adapting to it. Jade discusses architecture and her ongoing research into the connections between architecture, parkour, and accessibility. She reflects on disability, designing for all people, and creating more inclusive environments in all communities. Jade Amber Ragoshki is an architect, parkour practitioner, and the vice president of World Deaf Architecture. Her involvement in parkour led to her interest and eventual career in architecture. After finding her place in the deaf community, she discovered a new perspective and approach to architecture that is more inclusive, empathetic, and accessible to everyone. Jade specializes in accessible design for people with disabilities and provides architectural consultation to parkour communities. She advocates for inclusive play spaces for all ages and is researching the intersections between architecture, parkour, and accessibility. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 101. Thanks for listening. Jade, thanks for inviting me to your home so that we can sit down and have a what I'm hoping is a great conversation. I, I don't know whether I want to talk about, I'm just going to say hearing, but lack of hearing or architecture first. So maybe we'll do a little bit of the how, I'll do the how we met origin story. So sure. you, I mean, everybody's life is a big thing, but the frame where I met you was at the after party. It's not really a party. We were all just, everybody's hanging out and eating pizza and telling stupid parkour stories. The after party at one of the art of retreats that happened in Manhattan. Yeah, that was 2017. I remember that. Yeah, remember the days when we all got together and people did things? Ah, good times. And I think actually I was standing next to you and I had probably recently gotten my hearing aids. Although everybody knows me, is like, about time. You should have got them in seventh (laughs) grade. So anyway... I had recently gotten my hearing aid, so I had started noticing the more people. So I noticed yours, and I was like, hey, you, if you know, and I'm like, I, I ripped mine out of my ear. I'm like, Argh! you know, I'm like, I have these guys. Like, yeah, and I was like, oh, you have hearing aids too. Look at mine. We were like, <laughs> share, like, we were like, everyone else is like eating pizza, and like, we're just like, oh my God, look at our hearing aids. Like, yours is so cool. Like, yours are like silver, and mine's purple. <laughs> mine are red and blue. Yeah. The, the, the audiologist is like, now some people have trouble remembering which is which. Now I laugh. I've had them for three years. I'm like, I can tell them apart in the dark because the shapes are different. 
Right, they don't exactly. need to be multicolored now, but they no, are. Because then I'm always like, is the red ones right? Yes, okay. Uh, so I've, I was going to say, if you would first tell me, can you just describe like how, uh, not so much like I need to know the details, although I'm interested, of like exactly what your hearing loss is, but can you describe a little bit about how the world is different for you? And for that, you have to tell me a little bit about what your hearing, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. What your hearing loss is like. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Wow. That is like a very great question because most people like don't really ask that question. But um, yeah, so I, it's it's really interesting. I was born without any hearing in my right ear and that's because the auditory nerve never developed. So like I can't even like, my eardrum works perfectly fine, but I can't actually like get any hearing aids or mm. cochlear implants because it's like cochlear implants are for like, like, basically an eardrum replacement in a way. But if you don't have an auditory nerve to process the information, like you can't really do anything. And then in my left ear, on a good day with like perfect like environments, like no background noise, it's like 94%. So it's like pretty good. But then like the moment there's like any background noise, it Mm. goes down to like 64%. So, yeah. And like, you know, some people are like, well, I have 100% hearing. So 64 doesn't sound the worst. I'm like, well, <laughs> technically it's 100% each ear. So like, I like to tell people it's like 200% total. And then so I only have 64% out of 200%, which I don't know if that's how audiology really works, but this is how I explain it to people. Yeah. I, the, the discrimination thing. So I, um, <laughs> like, I was going to say, hey, do you remember when? I'm like, no, nobody remembers this stuff, Craig. It's <laughs> Back in the Ice Age, they used to give the school nurse this little box with like lights and they'd give you this crappy set of headphones and they would just do this like 30 second hearing test in the Mm -hmm. library. They'd line the kids up and I failed one of those. The lady with the thing was like, you know, you're supposed to like click or whatever. She's like, does it? And I don't respond. And she's like, you know, (laughs) she turns it up all the way. And then I'm like, I hear that. She's like, um, yeah, you need to take this note to your parents. (laughs) And then I went and had like MRIs and all this stuff, but that was when I was a kid. So I've always had it. And I always laugh. I put my hearing aids in to drive home. They should have warned me because I have significant hearing loss and it's it's like in the mid-range. I mm-hmm. put them in. I walked to the door and it was like the soundscape. When I opened the door, I was like, whoa, sensory overload. I couldn't drive. I had to take them back out mm-hmm. just like so a drive. And I live in like a sleepy little town. I mean, there might be like one kid with a skateboard, maybe. And like it was, I, there were like birds. I, I had to like take my ears back out. I'm like, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to practice this, but not while operating a motor vehicle. Yeah, so, that's so not. So, do you remember when you got your hearing aids? Like, I do, you- do. Yeah, I got my hearing aids. Um, I don't know how old I was, but it was like pr- pretty much grades, high school. It was high school, and it was really crazy because I also got in a car after I got my <laughs> hearing aids, but I wasn't driving. I was on the on the passenger side, that would have been and a good I had story. the window rolled down, and it was very interesting because like. When the windows rolled down, I was like, oh, this is nice. The wind's there. But with the hearing aids on, I can now hear on the right side. So I was like, I hear the wind. What is what? Yeah, no, you need to explain that. So I yeah. know what you're talking about. But if you're completely deaf on one side because of the missing nerve, how does the hearing aid on the right help you at all? So how my hearing aids work is pretty much on the... Basically, there's a microphone on the right side and a speaker on the left side. So all the sound that's picked up on the microphone on the right side gets transferred to the left side. And And it adds them together, adds up from the... And there's also a mic on the left side too. Yes, yes, exactly. And so that helps with like amplifying the sound as well. But man, it was crazy. There was like a fountain I passed. (laughs) I got obsessed with um, post-it notepads. 
Because, like, with post note pads, like, you know how you, like, flip through them? Yeah. Did you, and know, it makes did you that guys sound? know that that makes noise? When you flip those, that makes noise. Yeah. Yet some of us didn't notice that. I was like, I put it like, I was like, what, what? is this? I mean, I assume it made noise. And they're like, that makes that's The other one is like, I'm sorry, but if you're a guy, if you go to the bathroom, you're like, uh-huh. wait a minute. Okay. This is stop. Yeah. <laughs> this is everything is different. <laughs> Girl, I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> everything is so loud. It really is. But um, I actually had the same, how I discovered that I had hearing loss was the same as your story, actually, where um, in school, it was like first grade, I was like five years old, I had no idea that I was deaf, because like no one really like tells you that this is a thing. So when did you realize that you can read lips? <laughs> um, I, Wow. Did you actually learn or I d- like... I, I didn't think I, about it. It just it either. was just something I picked up. And then like in eighth grade, I didn't start realizing that I was adapting to my deafness until eighth grade when my teacher was like, hey, do you realize that like you turn your head a certain way and you cup your ear a lot mm-hmm. when someone's talking to you? I was like, no. Do, do I do that? And they're like, yeah, you do that literally every time. And I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe that's why I can like hear people better when I'm talking to them. Yeah. I, I was going to say the the discrimination thing... So I think the first time I noticed that I had gotten good at reading lips, I mean, I, I've never actually taken a test, but I, my swag would be maybe 75%. Mm-hmm. And I was at a small, like a concert on college, and there was like 60 people in a big room. And I don't know, a band or something playing. It was pretty loud because you're in a small space. And the people that I was there with are screaming at each other, you know, like, yes, and they're like, mm-hmm. and the person next to me, now my wife turns and yells at me and I actually went like, this is without hearing as I was like, why are you yelling? Because for me, the, the visual was most of what I was air quoting hearing. Right, and I'm right. like, why are you screaming? Like, cause the little bit of extra you get, there's a ton of extra that you get from all, even a shitty bit of sound that you can hear mm-hmm. if you can read lips. So then I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then many years later, when I finally <laughs> got off my dumb ass and went for hearing aids, the I had an audiologist do a test where they're looking through the window and reading me words. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like actually that might have been when I was in high school. But anyway, they they're like reading words and they're like say the word ball, but I can see them. So it was like I aced the thing, and my mom's like, <laughs> "Dumb yeah," you know. Like then they covered their mouth. Oh man, fail oh, like man. bad mojo. But what I wanted to ask you about was: Do you have my hearing loss? Does not also involve? I think they call it discrimination. Do you ever take the one where they play say the word? barf you know and sometimes you're like is that really a word did they say barf because darf's not a word and you're real quick you're like trying mm-hmm. to come up with the right answer but they do it with background noise just like oh i hated that that was the worst it's like not even good background noise like it was just like the worst background noise possible it's like tv static but like way worse almost like they designed it to screw up you screw up during your hearing test yeah um, it's like you're you're setting me up to fail yeah it's i always feel bad taking those anyway Okay, so that's that's how we met. We were like geeking out about yeah. that kind of stuff. And I think it's part of the reason why I'm drawn to doing podcasting because especially with I have hearing aids in that are um, in my ears. So they're, I mean, if you look, you can see them, but they're inside. So I can wear any kind of headphone, mm-hmm. but I can't put AirPods in my ears. So it was like I, I get to wear these big, giant, comfy headphones that are really good studio headphones. And then I get the people that I want to talk to, I like stick you in front of a really good microphone. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, I can talk to you. It's like, I can hear everything. It is like the perfect sound quality. I was thinking the same thing too. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah it's just like, I just sit here and talk about, I'm, I'm amazed the parrot has not missed out. There's a parrot in the room. We were expecting that. The parrot lives here too. However, there's a, this is our first parrot. Our, I'm like, I love words. I'm trying to work in parroting. 
you know, like this is our first <laughs> podcast that involves parroting, but yeah, no, it's not a thing. Um, but Baby, who is older than all of us, yeah, we, well, maybe. How old is the parrot? She's nearing her 50s, something like that, yeah. It's hard to tell. She's I, in her midlife crisis, but she like doesn't <laughs> even pay rent or anything, like, you know. <laughs> Baby, you need to step up your game. Yeah, she's just completely quiet. Yeah. Before, she was laughing along with us, and yeah, now she's just rubbing her beak on her... Anyway, so there's a parrot in the room in case you hear somebody making fun of us. So she's looking at me. I got my. She judges us silently. (laughs) Not sometimes, not so silently. I got my eye on you, Wazowski. Oh, there we go. She had some. She had some noise. Yeah. If only I had a third microphone, I could mic the parrot. That would be funny. Put the mic in front of that. Anyway, so I wanted to talk about all that because the the hearing loss, the hearing aids. I'm talking about all that because I'm going to turn completely in a different direction. Uh huh. And talk about architecture. Sure, sure. So I often tell people, I don't really care about your origin story. Not because I don't care, but because we only have so much time. Right, So right. I'm just wondering, was architecture, you know, when you were in third grade, were you thinking, I want to make buildings. But like, is architecture something that you feel like you've always been drawn to? Or is it something that like budded later in life? You tried, I don't know, something else or like, what's... Well, actually, I got into architecture because of parkour. Mm. So that was um, easy. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even have to ask for that. <laughs> I know, but uh, so it's an interesting story though because um, when when I was in living in Chicago, I'm originally from there, and I was back when we had forums in the parkour community, and we Huzzah! would like message each other on there. Someone was like, "Hey, there's this like cool parkour movie coming out, and we should all go see it." And I'm like, "Parkour movie, yeah." And everyone's like super stoked. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to this parkour movie and it'll be great. And what I didn't know was that the parkour movie was actually at the Gene, S- Gene Siskel Film Festival for architecture. <laughs> and so like it wasn't just like a movie about parkour, but it was actually like a mini series of architecture films. And the last one was about parkour and architecture. And so I went there and I was like watching all these films about like architecture. And one was like, about like creating a a rainforest inside of a building and it's an actual like science museum in San Francisco. And then Oh wow, build a microclimate. Wow. Pretty much, yeah. It was really fascinating. I was like, what this is not what I signed up for, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um so the last movie though was a uh, was about parkour and architecture and it's called My Playground and it was about Team Geo in Copenhagen and they wanted to design a parkour playground and they had an architect help him help them. And the architect is named his name is Bjarge Engels and he actually is like now a star architect. That's what we call like really famous architects these days, star architects. Star architects. Yeah. <laughs> and he was actually there for a Q&A. So this is before he was famous and he just like showed up was like, "Hey, like this is what like what I do. Like you can ask me questions." And so like we had people like from the parkour community being like, "Yeah, like how would you work with like the parkour people and all this other stuff?" And he was like talking about like, you know, how he designed the playground and other projects and I was like this is really fascinating so I watched it again the next day I brought my mom mm-hmm. and, and showed her and then we had a discussion and it was, she was like you know it'd be really cool if you got into architecture and I was like you know I was thinking about that every single person in my family has some artistic like trade that they do my mom is actually a painter and so she does painting for I was like, gonna ask who painted oh I actually <laughs> oh mad props I, uh, I stole these from outside they were just left out there for free no no. someone just like was about to throw them in the trash and I'm like I'll take those you're not no, serious I am serious people 
you know, New York City has a lot of stuff out on the street that people can just take. Uh, so I, sometimes I like to try and make myself look good by trying to guess. Like you start telling a story about your mom being an accomplished painter. And I'm like, oh, pff, did your mom paint that? Because that's awesome. And then I thought you were going to say you painted that. And I'm like, wow, now I feel like crap because those are really good. <laughs> but no, you got them off the dump anyway. Yeah, I know. Someone Our, painted them and they did a good job, but it wasn't myself or my mom. Don't cuff. There's a name on them. There's what does it say? Smudgy Mix Smudge is what it looks like from here. I'm unsure. I would say Smudgy Mix Smudge is a very good, very accurate (laughs) description. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) First name, I'm. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, my mom's a painter, and so I was like, I'm going to go into architecture, and I just committed after that because, like, I only had two more years left of high school. So I was like, well, they actually got rid of the drafting class right after, and so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to do what I can. Right. Mm, That's cool. And then I went to New York City for architecture school. Uh, well, that's a good place to do it. I mean, holy cow. Um, yeah, something. there's something about the scale. I don't know. I, I, I've been in the city now countless times, but not, you know, like not nearly enough to say I really know where anything is. I was like, oh, what is up? You know, 171, where's that? And I'm like, Google. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, right, Manhattan's long. <laughs> not that I mind. I don't mind coming up here, but I was like, this is not I'm like, oh, up there. I'm thinking like Midtown. <laughs> fine but i have no clue like oh how many how far is it you know what is it 10 blocks is a mile or something there's like a what's the mileage i have no idea oh okay. like, i thought all the art i thought that was part i'm of just the happy that exam. there's a no no there, it's it's much more complicated that it's actually a lot about like contracts and like how to build like detailed built like detailed connections for buildings huh. and whatnot but i mean i've been living in new york city for nine years now and i still can't tell you where everything is <laughs> Like, I know I'm an architect, but, like, this city is huge. Yeah. And, like, my job is literally to go from, like, the Bronx all the way to Staten Island and, like, the deep parts of Queens to look at schools. And, like, I am still surprised with, like, the different things that I discover. <laughs> You're still driving. Like, shouldn't I be in the Atlantic by now? <laughs> like, right. Like, exactly. Like, there, there's just so much that is New York City. So yes, if you don't know where everything is, I think it's okay. I'm happy that I actually know where Brooklyn is and Manhattan. When you said Staten Island, my brain actually knew where that was. I'm like, yes, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's just so fun. Like I, it's this, there's something, we've talked about the city a lot on the podcast because it's about two hours from me, depending where, depending where you're going, because it's so big. Um, it's about two hours from where I live. So it's, it's easy to do a day trip to just drive in or hop a bus and come in. And there are so many things here about architecture so i'm wondering about what scale of architecture draws you so like you know is, is your work a day architecture what is really calling you or i've talked to some people who who talk about like landscape architecture like you know the central park isn't done until the trees are 100 years old kind of thing mm-hmm. what what sort of scale calls to you so the scale that i'm interested in is the human scale of architecture because um, my specialty is within accessibility. And so, you know, when it comes to accessibility, it's really about the personal experience in design and how people really, you know, feel within a space and, and utilize that space. Hmm. You know, a lot of people can look at the larger scale of things, and that's important, too. But I think a lot of architects kind of need to re- like shift their focus towards like the personal experience of a space because everyone's like, oh, it looks pretty, but it's like, but how does it feel? So I'm really more interested in like the like sensory experience of a space, you know, not just like what it looks like, but like what does it sound like, you know, how like what are like the tactile inputs that you're getting when you're in that space, and so 
I think that the small scale is one I'm interested in, not to the point where it's like, oh, how do I like put these two things together? But just like rooms and like different sized spaces. I read an article. <laughs> You're like, I'm like, oh, if anybody would know how to feel this, it'd be you. I read an article about psychoactive spaces. So when I first read the article, I was like, is this like, you know, a cargo cult, woo woo. But <laughs> after I read it a, a couple more times, and then I'm like, no, this is actually just over my head. The, and I don't remember specifically what website it's on. Um, but it was published in a journal and then they put it up on a website. Uh, hey, we'll put it in the episode notes. But the point of the article was that there are certain things that you can experience. So like learning, for example, or love or like uh, an exchange of feeling with your mom or whatever, which change the way that you actually think. Like these are psychoactive experiences. And part of it is like, I don't quite have the language to hang on this idea. Mm -hmm. So the article was about spaces being psychoactive. So everybody knows about psilocybin and all the, and like drugs are a very common thing to talk about these days where people are talking about, I want to change the way my brain works by taking this mind-altering drug so I can have a new experience. And, mm -hmm. and so those mm -hmm. are psychedelics. Those are psychoactive. So I read this article about psychoactive space, and the article is like 20 years old or something, and I was just like, oh. Because we, we all have, a, well, with those people who, who move, we all have this feeling that we get. And a lot of times it's ineffable. Like, I don't, I don't, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. But mm -hmm. we want to engage with a space. And you're talking about literally architecting spaces with that in mind and i'm wondering have you ever uh well a thought about or like you're just looking at me like i'm weird or if you have thought about it have you ever looked into how the spaces actually affect psychology of people in them beyond I mean, it's pretty obvious that like this one's calming or this one's exciting or this one yeah don't do that they crush themselves on the stairwells kind of thing mm -hmm. but have you ever really looked into have you ever actually looked into the psychology aspects of how architecture affects us yeah, um, you know, going through architecture school, we do look into like how a space, not not necessarily into the scientific parts, but like we have an understanding of like how spaces affect people based on like the coloring and the sizes of the spaces and, um, you know, how certain spaces evoke different emotions and how like you have to under, you have to keep that in mind when, you know, when you're designing a courthouse, like maybe you shouldn't design a courthouse in like bright pink, you know, like certain <laughs> things like that. It's like, you know, certain spaces have to have like certain types. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, you don't want to like, you have to design a space appropriate to its use. <laughs> I'm thinking the jury room is red. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, I feel like emotionally it would probably feel like red is an appropriate color. It's just like warning. There's a lot of like really intense yeah. stuff here. But yeah, like you have to design space that is appropriate to its use and you have to understand like, you know, what is the mood and what is the environment of the space? Like, you know, when you're like, I'll use schools for an example, just because I am very involved with schools. You know, there's a lot of different like spaces in there, like science rooms, culinary classrooms, a regular classroom, libraries, and each space has a different environment and each mm. environment affects you differently psych psychologically. So like, even though we're not really super focused on like the specific science behind it, like we know what this space is supposed to feel like and what type of environment we're trying to invoke. And so we do a lot of research and like what certain things are needed in order to provide like a specific 
um, sort of like feeling in that space. And, you know, in, in accessible design too, you know, a lot of people think of like, oh, ADA, you know, which is like the American Disabilities Act. And so they say ADA design. And that's like not just the only way to design for accessibility. Um, just because like it's really just like a bunch of rules that you have to follow and check the box and that's it. But there's also this thing called multi-sensory design. And that was what I was tapping into before about like, you know, thinking about like, you know, what, how does a space look? How does it sound like? Um, basically, how does the space impact your different senses? And then when you put all those senses together, how does that make you feel? And mm. I think that really understanding a space like that is really important. And while like it's not quite like the like psycho architecture thing that the article was talking about, it's not like but it, it's still similar to that because it's it's trying to um, induce like an understanding of how people are feeling in that space. I'm wondering about, so sometimes I've learned, just ask the thing that's, uh, sorry, I'm looking out the window like something interesting, nothing interesting outside. I'm just, <laughs> just gazing off in the distance and I'm thinking, the actual question I'm thinking is, what about the intersection of art with architecture? So to go to the, is it the Met, where they have some Rodin, they have like a, mm -hmm. it's not a sculpture garden, stuff's indoors, which I think is stupid. You walk in there, you're like, why are all these sculptures just like smacked in the middle of the floor? Okay, whatever. But it seems to me that Sometimes people do it really badly. They just like, and and this is the spot here where the art goes, and just like stick it in later. Right. And I'm I'm wondering, on the projects that you, I would say that you work on, and I'm wondering maybe it's more like the, that you hope to work on. What do you what do you see as the intersection? Like, can the architecture be the art? I mean, at some level, yeah, sure. But can the architecture be the art, or do you feel like the architecture needs to be create the space and then the art happens in the space. I'm just wondering, like, this is a chance for me to, like, dig mm -hmm, into these mm -hmm. cross-connecting ideas. I think you can honestly have both. Um, architecture can be art, and there's a lot of buildings out there that are more sculptural than they are buildings. Mm. I mean... Um, What's that one building in, in <laughs> the Hudson this. Yard? <laughs> so I, I, I can never remember its name I I because I, I, I actually personally don't care for this building the, at all. The egg thing? Yeah, the, the egg thing. With the scissor stairs. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, well, I just, I'm not a fan of those type of buildings, mainly because that one specifically, it's like this, you, they put a lot of money into it and it's this huge sculpture and like, yeah, you can climb the stairs to the top and then look at a view, but like... <laughs> You can, it, it, it really doesn't serve much function other than that. Hudson Yards. Oh, it's called The Vessel. The Vessel. Duh. That's Neither right. Neither of us remember that. It yeah. looks, if you haven't seen it, if only we had a global network of all the knowledge of the humankind. The yeah. E-S-S-E-L. We'll link in the show notes, but it it's basically looks like a giant vase. It's probably six, ten stories high. It's pretty big. It's very tall. And it has all these little, like, almost like a double helix kind of outside. But you can basically go up staircases on the outside um, around and around and yeah, yeah but see to me that's like okay that's that's like an exercise what's the biggest piece of art i can create that we can climb inside of and technically that makes it a building you know like okay mm -hmm. but that seems to me like that's more like the exception that proves the rule you're talking about how uh, art and architecture need to be symbiotic rather than mm -hmm. be the same thing i mean architecture is also an art itself i mean when we design we're really thinking about the spaces and how like the lighting enters into that space and you know how does that impact 
not just like how the space looks, but like the forms that it creates. You know, there's like the envelope of the building that you have to think about, but then like how do the spaces fit within the building as well? And there are so many ways to approach design where it's like, do you build from the inside out or the outside in? Mm. And then, you know, just to touch on your question about like putting sculptures in architecture, you know, a lot of like, let's take the Guggenheim, for example. So... That museum is literally just like a huge ramp that goes mm-hmm. up and then you just like put art onto like the walls. But like the Guggenheim is a great example of it is a sculpture that you put art in. So it's an art piece that you put art in, which may have been the intention of the design. But yeah, it, it doesn't always work for like the different art pieces that are in there. So it's only specific types of artwork I think are appropriate for that. So it does create limitations, but architecture is also about limitations as well. It has to have some boundaries. Like the whole point is it's got a, it's some sort of divider. There's divisioning, dividing that is happening here. Mm -hmm. How do you define art? Oh my gosh. You know, it's been so interesting, like defining art, man. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. But that's even harder. (laughs) But I I have a very, I have a one sentence, one liner for defining parkour. But for defining art, that's more interesting um, in my book. (laughs) Well, I I just want to tell you a story real quick about. I hate um, stories. I don't want to hear a story. Please (laughs) tell me a story. Tell me a story. (laughs) So, I was at I was at a MoMA quite a few years ago, and I was walking through the museum, looking at all these different like art pieces. And what I like to do at MoMA is I like to go through the entire museum. So I look at all the art because they have a lot of like the same, but I like to go around and see like what's different and what are like the newer pieces in there. The least exciting piece of artwork that was in the MoMA was uh, a pile of bricks that was neatly stacked. Two piles of bricks or I don't know how to say Left an impression. Like two bricks high and it was about like a four by four square, four by four feet foot square. Yeah. Four by four foot square. I'm I'm doing a terrible job of getting English correct right now. <laughs> Whereas in a sentence, it's oh, yeah. putting two separate piles of bricks. Two piles of bricks stacked up on top of each other in a four by four square. That's an art piece. That was an art piece, and I was like, "What the? I don't know if you can curse on here. I don't know. Can you? I don't know. What the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? And I'm like, this can't be art, but it's like it's. It was artistic because it was starting to redefine, like, what can you consider as art? I'm like, some person got paid okay. millions of dollars to do that. I could have done that. I should have yeah, done that first. I get, this is, I, actually, I, I had that pile in my yard for a while, then I threw it in a dumpster. I don't, I don't get grumpy about, I don't know, is that, is that avant-garde? I don't, I don't get grumpy about that. I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, like, some people are just pushing the boundaries, and I don't get it, and that's okay. I think maybe, and I don't want to say it, like I'm more interested in lowbrow art because I've I've like seen the painting of the Last Supper and I've I've like seen the Sistine Chapel like in the Sistine Chapel and like that's there's a lot of really impressive just classic art and there's so many mm-hmm. things to see so I'm like yeah if people want to pile bricks I don't I'm just like all right that's messed up I'm like you know off I go I think if I were to, I think after this conversation that we've had about art I think that what art really is is like breaking the boundaries of the standard. Because, like, if you, look at, if you look at Van Gogh, for example, like, he had, like, the reason why he became famous was because, like, his paint strokes became more broad and his, like, artwork wasn't, like, super technical and, like, highly realistic. It was more of, like, 
the essence of what he was painting, not so much like every little detail. And that was like the first time anyone had ever done that. So I think the hyper-realistic is also art, but the other thing too is like trying to challenge what art is. And that's what the bricks are doing. So like I'm mad that that has to be that that's considered art, but at the same time it is art because of the fact that it's really challenging the notion of what art <laughs> made is. me stop and go watch yeah. the boundaries. Yeah, yeah, it, it evokes emotion. That's a that's a great. Doesn't definition. always have to be happy. Can you say it again? Yes. Because I, I don't want to try and say it and get it wrong. Is why I'm asking. You. I'm not putting it on the spot. I'm just like say it again. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm trying to remember what I just said. I'm really bad at repeating myself. Oh well, um, too bad we didn't record it. Uh, oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> let me wait. Let me think really quick. I didn't, mean, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, no, um, I cool. think what you said was art pushes the boundaries. Oh, art pushes the boundaries of st- of the standard. Yeah, I had it. I was just like, "What was the end of it?" That's good. Art. That's not, that's. I like that. Art pushes the boundaries of the standard. That's cool because it it pushes off of something that's recognizable into new spaces. That's great. And you know what's really interesting parkour does the exact same thing yeah yeah and so yeah i mean i i fell in love with parkour you know long before architecture but like obviously architecture and parkour are very related because we jump on it and climb on things and and do vaults and whatnot but like you know a lot of like the philosophy behind parkour is also very much like the philosophy behind like art and architecture you know architecture very much also pushes like the boundaries of like what we can do i mean that that's why we've had so much um like significant technical advances in the last like century with architecture too it's like we have so much access to like technology now that we're able to like create new things that never existed before (laughs) 10 years ago the oculus i mean i don't know what you think of the oculus as an actual piece of architecture you know but but the first time i saw that was at night and i was like what in the i mean okay that's art like that Mm -hmm. is an art installation in and of itself I actually was there three times before I realized it was actually a building. I just oh, thought, really? like, unless you walk right up to it, it's not obvious. That's, oh, there's an indoors. You know, it's over a mall and there's a train station underneath it, right? They put the new. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole train station too. <laughs> but I feel dumb. Like, oh, wow. There's a whole building in here. Look at the people. You know, it's like. Not the- yeah. You know, the, the Oculus is actually a really cool space. And that's another way of putting art into a building. It's not always about like oh, you have a museum and then you have to put art pieces in there. But like you can create like a whole artistic piece that is the building Mm. as well. But also separate from the building. Because when you look at it, you're not like, like you just said, you didn't know that it was the building itself. Yeah, you just two, thought it was an two installation. Two blocks away. It's an, I mean, I looked at it, I'm like, no, that is an artist. Like, it's like, is it, hey, it's as big as a big building. You're like, what? And it looks, I mean, it looks exactly like eyelashes and an eye. It was just like, whoa, it's really an impressive piece. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I was just like, when we were talking about, you know, the, the vessel over in the Hudson Yards and things there. It is neat that New York can... Uh, focus you know they're oh an oculus joke you can focus the art and the architecture and all that stuff it's like what do you want to do you know like you want to build buildings that are shaped like a wedge we got one of those you want to build the tall you want to build big you want to build wide you build underground mm-hmm. um, yeah the um brain not working the world trade center i would call those more monuments than art installations but the two uh i'm, I'm assuming you've seen them right that yeah so if you if you don't know what i'm talking about look it up on the internet but basically it's the footprints of the two towers are now water installations slash monuments um, that the water pours down the insides of the insides of the recesses 
Um, and then the cascading water looks like the stark vertical lines that was an architectural feature of the building. So it has like a, a mirror-ish sort of like to remind you of what the building looked like. Uh, and then the water all drains into the center, which I think is the least cool feature of the whole thing is that you can actually see the water going in the whole lot. Other things I thought would be cooler, but it's a beautiful space. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring it up is not to like, because we're in New York City, but I bring it up because when you go there, there, I don't think there are signs that say shut up. Like there are signs that say, please keep off the grass. Right. And like, don't climb on the trees because it's a park. But there's no signs that say, please be quiet to respect. But you like turn the corner and it's just like you walk into a sound dampening field. And there's just something about like that space. I mean, partly it's, you know where you are. Yeah. But there's when, if you don't know what happened and never saw a picture of it, you would not have any idea what really, I think there is... On the uh, is that the south end of that park, they have a piece of the sculpture that was in the courtyard. Have you seen that? I uh, actually didn't pay attention to the south okay, part. Sorry. I was I, there was like there's so much to see yes. at the memorial. So what I was going to say is when you when you walk into the memorial, there's a there's a space. And what I wanted to ask you, the question that I'm going to come back to is, oh look, architecture, monument, art that actually affects people psychologically, mm-hmm. like wow, big time. But I was about to say, when you go there, there's no hint or indication of like the magnitude of like the dirt and chaos and debris that like covered half of the island, right? It's a very clean, like calming space. But then the pause is, unless you go to the south end of the park, where they have more recently added, there's an elevated walkway down there that I forget, there's meaning to the materials that made it make the walkway up. But it has like a terraced hardscape landscape kind of layout smack in the middle of it. They took the sculpture, mm-hmm. which is, that was a sphere of some sort. There was a sculpture in the courtyard in front of the two towers and almost unbelievably, it isn't smashed completely flat. It actually survived. I mean, it's obviously damaged and they kind of cleaned it up a little bit, but not much. So there's this really, I mean, if you didn't know what you're looking at, you'd be like, what is this ratty piece of junk doing here? But then when you stand there and you're like, oh, yes, if I turn around, I can see the world. You're like, oh, this is the sculpture. So like the sculpture bears witness to Mm -hmm. the uh, words fail me magnitude of destruction and rubble. Um, So I I really wanted wanted to say, like, what are your thoughts on how that monument space affects people? Because I was going to say there's no hint of the the grit and destruction, but there actually is if you go to the south end. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean... It's a very interesting space because I think at this point, a lot of people know the story of 9-11 and what happened there. And I think it's not really about like, you know, creating the same like feel of like the day that it happened, but it's a memorial. So it's there to like be a memorial for the lives that were lost there. And it's also like when you go to that space, like even though you don't, you almost don't need to put up signs there because of the fact that like everyone knows like, this is a space where like you have to be respectful and like, like there's like this heaviness there. And I, and I feel like what architecture does is it memorializes like the essence of a moment in time, like, like nine 11. And, you know, I think that what that sculpture does is like, it reminds people of what happened, but also it's what, what that whole memorial is also about is like showing people that, we can come back and there's new things that can happen and while still preserving like 
the memories. The memorial of the, yeah. of the event and the tragedy. Exactly. And I, a, another great example was um, when I went to Berlin a couple years ago. And like, because Berlin is still recovering from World War II. And so there's like a lot of spaces um, throughout the city that like are still bombed out. Like obviously there's not like the rubble, but like there's just empty buildings, like nothing there. And a really interesting um, building was uh, this church that was bombed out. But like the church managed to like stay mostly upright, but the roof was just absolutely destroyed. And so they had the option of do we rebuild the church or do we build a new church? And what they decided to do was they kept the existing church with it, like the roof all bombed out and people can go inside and visit it and like see what the space looks like. But then they built a new church next to it. So now you have the old space next to the new space because they didn't want to delete the history. And they were like, we really much want to preserve the history while also showing that we can move forward and have the new. Mm. And so like, that was a very impactful moment. And like, you really do feel the weight of those spaces. Cause it's like, wow, this is really profound. And like architecture does that, like not just in tragedies, of course, but like in spaces that are like very positive and happy as well. And so it's about like really like designing a space to suit like the moment. And sometimes it's about capturing something and holding it in like the building and what you're designing, or sometimes it's something entirely new. Mm-hmm. And so that, and that's the artistic part of architecture as well. What I was actually thinking was the Victor Emmanuel monument in um, Italy. Come on brain in Rome. The, was, uh, I think it's a Piazza Venezia is an enormous traffic circle, like a city block size traffic circle. And it, it's like the space in front of the Victor Emmanuel Monument, which is uh, an Italian monument. I believe Victor Emmanuel was a general in World War One. I. I might be wrong. It might have been the president of Italy. I'm sorry. Um, but it is, the, you've everybody's seen it. You're all mm-hmm. going, I know. Yes, it's this giant, like, it's a huge facade of a building that's like a block wide with columns, huge arrays of stairs out front that are, that have like, gates like you can't can't use the stairs um and there are chariots like multi-story high bronze chariots with horses on the roof of the building Mm -hmm. it's like whoa and when you uh to visit the monument i said it's a a monument to all those who died in world war one or the it's like the great war it always Mm -hmm. like makes me double clutch like yeah we'd only have one like this war is so bad it's the great war and then we had a second one it's like oh now we have to number them to go in and visit it, you, I forget if you go in the sides or the front, but when you go in, there are these huge stairwells and you're, you're completely dwarfed, you know, like everything about the entire experience completely dwarfs you on purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, it tells you about the design and all this as you're going in and you go inside the building and you can, like the further you go through your visit, the more, if my memory serves, the more like people scale things become. But when you're standing out, you know, <laughs> quarter mile out of and you're looking at this building it's like that is completely huge and grand in scale and i bring this up because i don't know why but they went around the back of the building in recent years and Mm -hmm. built an elevator system with like a walkway and now you can just ride up the elevator walk out onto the roof and you can just like stroll around on the roof and look down on the plaza in front of the building and it's like oh there's this horse and here's the and and in my opinion it completely wrecked it I, I was like, I, I was completely 
like standing in front of it, a gate, mm-hmm. like this thing is amazing. And then I went through it. I'm like, this is amazing. And then I climbed the top of it and I'm like, oh, it's a building. I mean, like <laughs> it, it's, it was like, it was clear that you were never supposed to be standing on top of the building and getting the view. Right. I did, so and I had the, the same, had a similar experience at the Vatican when I, uh, if you've ever seen a picture of the Vatican, if you stand in the, and look at the church, there are, I think it's 11 saints on top. There are these huge statuary on top. Mm-hmm. And they really look impressive, but it, on part of the, you can take a tour, which you can actually go up there and stand like, not right next to them, but off the back. Mm-hmm. And there, I think that the architects intended for you to be standing up there because it was just as awesome to stand like the statues are maybe 15 feet or like three times normal size. They were super impressive, you know, to be in their presence mm-hmm. on that upper balcony. So it just... Those two experiences came to mind when you were talking about architecture and art. And I was thinking, like, it seems clear to me in one of those situations, you were never intended to be on the roof because it totally blew the whole effect. Um, and in the other case, yeah, I think they had intended this is something, maybe it wasn't meant for the public. Maybe it was only meant for people in the church, but just yeah. was different. It's it's funny that you say that because so many times architects are like, oh, yeah, we're going to design it and people are going to do X, Y, Z thing and only that. And then it's like, that's not <laughs> what happens majority of the time. It's like, you're like, okay, this person is going to walk in and they're going to make a right. And then there's going to be this room and they're going to have this experience. And like architects <laughs> like to really build out like exactly what happens and then design the space because they want to like create experiences. But then like you can never predict what someone's going to do. Like people can do the craziest things. And that's the thing I love about parkour and architecture too. It's because like, in parkour, you can access spaces that you never would be able to access otherwise. And, yeah. like, I, I think that sometimes architects get frustrated because it's like, well, you weren't supposed to be there, but you're there now. And that was not something that we had to think about until you decided to climb up on this roof. And <laughs> people weren't just supposed to just stand on that roof or something. And so it's pretty funny when, like, that happens. But um, we can't predict every single thing. And... It's it's interesting when like the rule gets broken of like what the architect thinks is going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know the Columbus Circle area? I in- vaguely I'm pretty sure I've driven through it, but I couldn't tell you like where it is. I mean, I know it's, it's the upper okay. anyway. Well, let's I'll just say no. Okay. <laughs> well, basically, it's like a mashup of your two stories. Basically, uh, uh they have this like circle, traffic circle where uh <laughs> They have a statue of Columbus that's like, I don't know, 50 feet up in the air. It's pretty tall. So he looks like this tiny little man just like standing up on top of like the Literally the on circle. a pedestal. Yeah, right. on a pedestal. <laughs> but uh, a pedestal. this artist did an art installation where they built scaffolding all the way up to the top and people could walk up the scaffolding <laughs> and stand right next to Columbus. And he's actually like, I don't know, like... 15 20 feet tall like he's massive when you're saying that's really what like you, you he's like this tiny little guy when you're on the ground but then when you actually stand right next to him it's, it's like huge. massive but like they would never expect you no one would ever expect you to actually like stand next to a statue that's like yeah, five ten, stories 10 feet away from the statue right 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 <laughs> over my helicopter so that's I, neat yeah that was really cool and i i went there when i was like a freshman in architecture and i was just like whoa this is insane and it was it really put things into like perspective with like you know human scale and like when you're supposed to do something like wh- in the human scale and when something can be like totally massive but because you're far away it doesn't kind of, matter huh 
if you could have a magic flying carpet, what other thing would you want to go do that to? Hmm. I don't know. If I had a magic flying carpet and I were to like fly around and like observe buildings, I, I don't know. I think it'd be fun to fly around the Forbidden City in China. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. Cause they have like all these like different temples that are also like far away that like you can't necessarily go to. And it'd be mm. cool to like go around and like see like, what are these spaces like? That's like meant to be like super private and like no one ever gets to like experience those spaces. Um, or I can just parkour there. <laughs> With the carpet in your back pocket. So when they show up, you get out of here. Exactly. Neat. I often say to guests, was there anything that you were thinking about, you know, leading up to this? You're like, oh, I hope we get to talk about dot, 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 or questions you wanted to ask or things you were thinking about beforehand? Or Well, so I, when it comes to things that, like, I want to talk about, like, I have this trifecta of topics that I'm really focusing on in my research. And I'm trying to find, like, the intersections between all three and how they relate to each other. And, like, the first one is uh, parkour, the second one is architecture, and the last one is, like, disability. And, like, they seem really arbitrary when, like, you, like, talk to anyone else about it, but they're all things that, like, relate to my life, and I have experiences. Those aren't arbitrary. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) No, those are not arbitrary. Those make perfect sense for you to be interested in those. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, you know, they all relate to me, and I have, like, different experiences with each, and I'm, as I've, like dived into parkour and architecture and I just have my deaf experience. I don't dive into that. But like I, I've started noticing like interesting relationships and I'm like, what else is there between mm. all of them? So like I haven't quite figured out like what those relationships are, but I've started noticing like little tidbits. An interesting one is like, you know, I specialize in accessible design and something that I've discovered is that Spaces designed for people with disabilities are actually some of the best parkour spots because they have ramps and handrails and like all the things that people would want to do to like practice vaults and precisions. And like I've noticed that people like to really gather around those similar spaces. And so I don't know what that all means yet, but I think it's really interesting that like this space that's meant for accessibility allows for more like. It, it not allows, but like it, it, it drives people to like generate like more creative ideas of how to use that space as opposed to like you know spaces yeah, that are just designed for standard life. Sum. We can make it. It's actually we can make it so it's accessible, and that makes it better. Like it's one of one plus one is three, not two. Right. It's like well the. The true, my true mantra of accessible design is like it's it's about making a space that like you know, makes people comfortable and it makes a space that everyone can access and experience and enjoy and do what they want to do. And so like all spaces are designed specifically for accessibility, but when you design for accessibility, it ends up being a better space for everybody else. And so I've noticed that with parkour as well. It's like, we're like, Oh my God, like there's like these handrails and there's this ramp and like, we can do all these like cool moves and like, Oh, look at this cat. Somebody built this just for me. Right. Uh, In my head, I have an image and I don't even know where in the world it's from of, um, start with a long flight of stairs, like a two long flight, like three, four stories, uh, but long outdoor stairs, you know, with a long tread. Mm -hmm. And then they cut in, a handicap sloped ramp and the 
when you stand back, you mm -hmm. actually, it's really hard to see the ramp because the ramp, you know, is running across the stairs. Oh, I know what so, you're talking about. So like for everybody going the world, they're going, what in the, imagine a normal flight of stairs. Everybody, like we're all walking like 12, 14 people abreast. We're all walking up the stairs and at the top, we get to like the 13th step and there's a landing mm -hmm. and then things get flat and then we walk a little bit and then there's more stairs. You'll find this like in front of the Philadelphia Art Museum. That's a very common thing. And there's some sort of human engineering thing where like if you don't do that people tend to pick up speed and they makes crushes and people fall and blah 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 mm -hmm. well the the thing that i'm envisioning is if you pictured that landing just imagine that it was sloped so that the people walking up on the far right went like six steps and the walking people walking up the far left went like 20 steps before they encountered the landing well that means you could go to the right end of the landing and go across the space no stairs just along the ramp and then it like the ramp cuts back the other way so you can basically like roll like a hand truck with stuff on it or your wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You can roll up this whole thing. But I, I think I've seen pictures and videos of people who walk down it who don't realize it's meant to be an accessibility ramp. Because if you walk down it in a straight line, it's like step, 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 flat landing. Right. I mean, like it's sloped to the left, but you don't notice. And it, it actually, it's like, this is exactly like the kind of stairway design that we took us a while, but like you need to have landings in there, people or things right, happen. Exactly. But you know, you make the landing slope and bam, it's an accessible ramp. Uh, right. Like so that that sprung to mind as like a ooh, can I talk one of those out loud? We have a there's this thing that I've seen photos of on the internet and it's called a stramp. Um it's a ramp and a sta and stairs combined into one and it's basically what you're saying where it's like a whole bunch of stairs, but there's a ramp just like zigzagging mm. all the way up to the top. And it's an interesting attempt to like make a space that is not normally accessible, also accessible. Um, and I think it's like a really cool um, design. The interesting thing part, the interesting thing about it though, is um, it's not considered accessible based on ADA requirements because the requirements are very strict on like what is defined as a ramp. So like it really makes it difficult to start getting creative with certain things for accessibility because it's like so constrained. Mm. And I mean, they're there for a reason. A lot of it is safety related, but it's like, how can we work with like the ADA and then like do more to like have spaces that are more integrated for accessibility um, in our designs? Because there's only really three ways. Accessibility is really about like, you know, getting from point A to point B, very much like parkour. And like, how do we do that? And, you know, there's three different ways to really, like, get from one elevation to another. And it's usually, like, by taking stairs, going on a ramp, or, like, having some sort of, like, hydraulic system or, sort of lift. or a lift or an elevator or something like that. And, you know, but then there's this fourth part, which is, like, parkour, which is an entirely <laughs> unexpected, uh, an entirely unexpected facet of how do we get from one elevation to another that people just don't necessarily take into consideration. But like when we do parkour, it's like, oh yeah, like this is a no brainer. We're just going to like, you know, like precision from here and then like do a cat leap over there and then like, you know, balance on this thing. And then we've made it. We're at the top. Right. And like, there's like all these different possibilities that are open up to us. And I think that that's like really fascinating. And I wonder if there's ways to like take like the applications of parkour and then bring it into the accessibility world to somehow not saying that like, you know, we should make everyone do parkour to get from one place to another for accessibility, but just like how do we take those elements and like somehow have more options to like 
provide elevation changes. I think I see where you're going. I w- I, earlier, when you mentioned that well-designed spaces, you know, that are accessible by a wide range of move of, of movement abilities, like normal people, normal people, <laughs> I almost said muggles. <laughs> Can't call them muggles. The normal people are not muggles. <laughs> the normal people's movement ranges. And then we said, you know, it seems like when the spaces are well-designed, they're really good for parkour. And my first thought was, yeah, for me, it's always been, I see a line. I mean, my lines may have curves in them, but I see a line through a space, which is clearly not what the original creator was thinking because my line goes over the railing and then like up the wall. And and that's a, that's a different way to go through the space. Mm-hmm. So when you were just saying now about ways to change elevation, I was like, yeah, a lot of the really cool parkour I've done have been in places where well, there's no reason I couldn't go up that or down it, you know, like, but it requires a bit of pulling and pushing and jumping and climbing or whatever. And it's like, it wouldn't take much to encourage movement. Like, okay, there's the easy, the, the really easy way you can like, I, I have a delivery. I'm pulling a hand truck. Okay. I'll go up the ramp. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or the, the normal way is uh, most people go up these stairs. Like we can handle a lot more people if we go up the stairs or, or there's an elevator over here too. Or you can go this way over here where you like climb up the column and then go across the thing. And it's basically safe. But the invitation is there for, you know, if you want to play on the hard mode, you can go that way. Um, and that'd be an interesting, I don't know that I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen a space where it was really clear that they were, I mean, we've all seen play, play spaces. Mm-hmm. Like you're clearly in a space where, yeah, you're supposed to be playing and physically, okay, not those. I mean, like I've never been to like the front of a department store and it was clear that, you know, this this these are meant to be like stadium stairs. Like, you know, the steps are 28 inches and they're like, well, right. that's not. I mean, yeah, we can go up that. I've never seen a space like that where the invitation was to really try the hard way. Yeah, and, you know, I haven't quite figured out, like, what all of this means yet in terms of, like, architecture and accessibility and parkour. But, like, you know, there's there's some interesting relationships, and I want to know more of, like, how can we, like, you know, take certain concepts from one thing and then apply it to the other Mm. and then what does that look like it's highly conceptual right now but like it could be something that could be developed to like you know provide more accessible spaces or you know um understand like why spaces are great for parkour and what's my third trifecta i know i said i have a trifecta but sometimes i forget what they all (laughs) parkour architecture and and Accessibility. That's right. I I kind of I didn't hit all of them. I just kind of merged two of them together. I personally like. I mean, not that I don't like when somebody has everything all like lined up and t dotted, and I have had people show up with like notes and like Excel spreadsheets of like what they wanted to cover. Hey, it's fine. You know, whatever. The whole point is to give you a platform to talk. So, but I kind of think that things are really fun when the guests are a little like, you know, I really want to like talk through this. So I, I have nothing like you said three, but you only covered two and a half. Man, I'm like, no, I, I think it's really cool to see, except we're recording audio, to hear people's thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part. I, I think too many people skip that. They don't pay attention to their own thought process. I'm not saying that they're not thinking, but they're, they don't, like pause and do the wait, but why kind of thing. And I, I'm kind of sensing that maybe part of what drew you into architecture is the wait, but why, like, why can't that be this way? Or why can't I have a space which engages this and dots that I and crosses this T? Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my guess, you know, 58 minutes into recording. <laughs> I love segues. It's always fun to try and find our ways back to them. But um, with just what you were saying before about like the thought process, 
I, I feel like it actually has a lot to do with like my, my deafness because as you, as you know, being deaf is not easy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to like, don't group me with you. I'm, I'm not actually deaf. I, I can do pretty well, but yes, I am compared to most people. I have a shitty hearing. Yeah. Well, yeah, like being, being hard of hearing does come with its challenges yes. and like growing up, like not being part of like a deaf community has been really complicated because when, when we first discovered that I was deaf, the doctors were like, oh, you should like normalize her. Like, you know, don't teach her sign language, like make her feel like she's just part of it, like everyone else. And like, there's nothing different about her. But like what that did was just like, everyone was like, no, you have to be a certain way. But it's like ignoring the fact that's like, no, I'm, I, I am like hard hearing. I can't hear in one ear and I, I need people to like acknowledge this. Yeah. And so and there are tools like, I mean, aside from hearing aids, but like sign language and there are, and like learning to read lips and nobody ever told me that that's something you could, I was just like, Oh, you know, do you, have, do you speak any other lang- any other languages? Uh, I know some Chinese. Can you but read lips in Chinese? No. Okay, because I tried to uh, when I was long ago in high school. I had a whole bunch of French, and yeah, that was fun. And blah blah blah. And then when I got into parkour, it was like, oh, French is kind of important. So I started really trying to stuff French in mm-hmm. my head. When I went to France and started like, I had to look away. In fact, the people that I was spending time with, I'm like, okay, when you talk, I'm going to look away, but it's not because I don't want to hear what you have to say. It's because your mm-hmm. mouth is not making sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely different. I studied French for seven years and it, I, I can say like some things, but like, it's just like really hard for me to like learn certain languages. And it was the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm reading your lips and like, I understand that this is not the same language, but I like, am not following because I'm reading, I'm, I'm trying to read English, but I'm hearing French yeah. and it's like trying to like translate two different languages at the same time. Um, what language do you think in? I think in English. Do yeah. you ever switch? Like how good is your Chinese? Um, I, I switch in Chinese when I'm like talking to people in Chinese, but I don't like think like on my pastime, but I, I, I started learning sign language three years ago. Yes. Three years ago now. And I have caught myself like thinking in sign language because sometimes like it's more expressive or more like straightforward because like mm. it's, it's gestures and expressions in your face. It's not always like words. So like. Uh, it's it's much easier to think certain things out in sign language. I'm because laughing because we're about to discuss and demo sign language in a podcast. In a podcast. <laughs> go <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like I'm going on a tangent here. With no, that's fine. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, no, I, I I don't. I, I think I know the I know the letter R. Yeah, that's R. Yeah, R is like two fingers crossed over each other. Like you're like, you know, when you lie to someone or like, you know, when you're like lying to someone, but you tell them you're telling the truth and you cross your fingers to be like, that yeah, wasn't do real. That, and then yeah. hold it up palm toward the other person. Yeah, you hold it up and like you're sh- like you're showing someone that you lied to this, them. This also, I think there's a science fiction thing. It's not the, I know it's not the Spock thing, but I think there's also a science fiction. The only reason I know this is that when the pandemic started, I tried to start a Zoom not a meme, but like a Zoom habit of when the other person turns into a robot and like their video locks up, the last thing I would do is hold up the ASL for R, mm-hmm. meaning like I, I see your, so that like when, when my screen freezes, the last thing you see is me holding up, you are a robot. And yeah, it's just way too nerdy for people. Sorry, that's the only <laughs> I love ASL that. I know is R. I love that's the second letter of my name. What is it? C R C R A I G. Yeah. Yeah. 
if anyone is that? interested, uh, if you if you look up ASL alphabet yeah, and look at C-R-A-I-G, that's what we just did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just fun. I don't know. I love not your like headphone space, right? It's awesome. It's like, this is great. I can hear everything. I know. Um, so nice. I'm going to miss this. You have no idea how much you're going to miss this. You'll see that's another part. There's a whole, sometimes Melissa and I talk about the guests get movers mindsetted as a verb <laughs> because there's a whole, I mean, it's a good, there's a whole experience of like us getting there, of like arriving if you're coming to us or blah, 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 or talking or food or you said hors d'oeuvres. This is awesome. I keep wanting to Thank stop you. talking and eat the salami, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens around the actual recording. Mm. Where was I going with this? Sign language. Oh, at the end, you're going to find out how oh, it's like, oh, when you take the headphones off. But anyway. Yeah. I have so many things. So, like, I think I talked about, like, the architecture, like, theory with, like, parkour architecture and accessibility. And, like, I'm still trying to figure that out. I think what I want to talk more about now is, like, like deafness with me and, like, my relationship with parkour and, like, some things that I'm seeing there. Because, like, you know, there's been a lot of conversations about, like, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all that stuff. But just, like, for some background, like, when it came to, um, you know, discovering my deafness and growing up with my, like, experience um, being hard of hearing and, like, not being part of, like, a deaf community, like, part of why the parkour community was so important was because I didn't have a space where there was a community. And the parkour community was really, like, the first time I, like, experienced, like, you know, this like gathering of people that where we were like all like close knit and mm. we were doing the same thing. And it was like really great. Be, like the Chicago parkour uh, community really like, became my family during like a huge transitional time in my life. And so like that's why like parkour became so profound for me in the beginning. And like, you know, as I like got older, I started like having a lot of issues with like communicating with people and I was like man like am I just like really stupid or something like why don't people like want to talk to me or like why do people not like you know really interact with me and I just like didn't understand like is it me like am I having like an issue mm. and then like in in college in my second or third semester of college I um basically started a two-year period of like social isolation basically like not really interacting or talking to anyone. Why? And I was just like, Why? what is happening? Like I didn't understand what was going right. on. And like architecture school was hard. And I understand that like, you know, <laughs> you're busy I, doing work all the time. I had a roommate who was an architecture student. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But like, I was just like, what is happening? And like, you know, I would talk to like professors. Like my thing is like, I'll go up to a professor in the beginning of a class and I'll be like, hey, just letting you know, like I can't hear it in my right ear. I may need you to like repeat yourself every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And like sometimes like, you know, I have issues with like hearing when an assignment is being told to us. And like, can you just be accommodating to that? And I've had like professors, some professors usually are really great. And they're just like, okay, thank you for letting me know. But others are like, oh, well, if you're failing later on in the semester, don't use that as an excuse. And I'm like, what? I just wanted you to write it on the board, bro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I was like, I just wanted you to like repeat yourself. I wasn't trying to like get all like intense here. <laughs> but like, I was like, whoa, what is up with that? Like, huh. I didn't understand. And so this is like a very like 
long story. But the next part is like I had a professor who basically who basically didn't understand that I had hearing problems, even though I told them like, hey, I'm hard of hearing in my right ear. And like, I just like need you to repeat yourself. Like he just didn't like understand what that meant. So like I was like having issues with communicating with them. So like he would like sometimes change the location of the class, but only tell the class. And then I didn't hear it. So I'm just like sitting in the classroom being like, where is everyone else? And no one (laughs) told me. And then I would show up late to class and he's like, oh, I see you're really late. I see you. Clearly you're really dedicated to this, like, you know, practice. And I, and, and then he would be like, everyone, do you see Jade here? Like, this is what a bad student looks like because she's not showing up on time. So she's not taking it seriously. And so how I got into accessible design was because of this moment, because I just got so fed up with this guy. And I was like, we were designing a library for that class. And I was like, well, I'll design a library for deaf and hard of hearing people so that he can understand what it's like to be deaf and hard of hearing. And so he wouldn't be, I, cause like having the conversation doesn't always connect with people. But, but when you if like, I speak architecture at him, maybe he'll get it. Yeah. Right. So I just started telling him like, you know, this is what a space is like for um, like, pe- like this is what people deaf and hard of hearing people need in order to like, have like a inclusive environment that's comfortable and inducive to like learning and understanding a space. So like, you know, cause libraries aren't just like for, you know, reading books. It's also about like researching and finding knowledge and, you know, having a like environment where you can just like learn things. And so like, it's, it's very similar to like what I was doing in college. So I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to like show my professor like what I need in order to like have a good space to like be a student. Right. And, but as I was doing that research, I discovered the deaf community because I didn't know about it at all. And I'm like, I don't know, in my early twenties at this point, I don't know. I just gave away how old I was. I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just went, I had never thought about that either. And I am not in my early (laughs) twenties. And this was a very interesting moment for me. Because, like, I just discovered the deaf community, didn't know it existed, and I was opened up to a whole world of other people who had, like, similar similar experiences. Okay, get out of my... (laughs) (laughs) Psych, give me a beer. (laughs) So, um, and it was very profound, because, like, I never really knew deaf people. I never talked to anyone who, like, understood, like, what my experience was like. So, like, I was like, oh... All of these, like, issues that I thought were, like, I'm not, like, smart enough was just people not understanding my disability. And it was, like, a really, like, I realized that it was a really big deal because it validated a lot of things about myself. Yeah. Like, oh, like, I'm not, like, you know, stupid. Or it's not that I don't understand something. It's just that people don't understand that I'm not hearing a certain piece of information to connect whatever thing I'm trying to learn. And so that was a really big deal. And basically at the end of the semester, this professor was like, hey, everyone, this is Jay. She's about to present her project. By the way, she's hard of hearing. So if she needs you to like repeat yourselves, please do so. And um, if she, you know, you know, has all these other accommodations, please like accommodate those things unprompted. And I was like, that was really interesting for me because like, it's not that this guy was trying to be like a terrible person and like not accommodate me. He just didn't understand what I needed 
to like have the access to like the environment that would require me to like learn and 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 follow along with everyone else because like when everyone's just hearing the same thing it's like oh okay like jay must be hearing that too but how are they gonna know that i'm missing things and i can't tell them that i'm missing information because i'm clearly missing <laughs> the information here, raise your hand, right? i've had people where i've had people who are like oh well if you just like didn't hear that you should have like let me know i'm like <laughs> how are we how using these s- words the same way do you like- understand what you're asking of me <laughs> like that's impossible <laughs> you're asking me to predict a future and then tell you to repeat what the future is yeah. in real time. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I got into accessible design. Cause I realized that a lot of like people with disabilities go through environments where it's designed not for them. And I experienced that personally going through college. And I realized that the spaces in like the lecture halls were just so loud that I just, I could watch someone present and I know that they're talking and I'm like, I have no idea what they just said. There are words coming out and I, I'm trying really hard to process it because like I'm paying attention, but like no matter how hard you try, it's just not happening. And it's like, you, we really need to change these spaces. I'm nodding vehemently over here. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 Yes. Because I had the same experience. I didn't have my hearing aids when I, I didn't have hearing aids when I was in college. And I often wonder, like, wow, I wonder if, you know, what, how, how different it would have been. Maybe it would have been less of a struggle. I, I learned pretty quickly to, like, sit down front, like, you know, get in as close as I could. Is right. that sometimes, then, then at least when you turn around, you can read lips. Although you can read lips from pretty far, but um, it's not the same. It's not the same. And also what's really interesting is um, only 30% of the human language is readable by lips. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of words look the same when, like, you only read them. Yeah. And so it, it's... It, it's not like the end all be all solution to yeah, you like, can't you, you can't like um like i say i can often tell you what the gist of the news is if you cover the crawl from if i stand there and watch for a few minutes but if you just like show me a random video of somebody saying a word like i don't know i'm like i right. need to see like the whole oh yeah that's weather and now okay oh we're doing weather all oh, right and thunder and lightning and then there's tips you get from body cues and facial language there's so much to it absolutely yeah no if it it's is, just a video it it's is impossible. a fun superpower though i really oh, do yeah. enjoy i have i have used that maliciously <laughs> in like environments you know like in college right now people are talking about me and then at the you know then i walk over and say I read lips from across the room, you know, and like it, it is once you realize that you can do it, it's like, oh, this, this could be used for ill. Yeah. Yeah. There's a clear conference room at my office. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, I what they're talking about. Like, is it, are they talking about me over there? Yeah. <laughs> All that stuff. Yeah. You can really spot your name. I know exactly what my name looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It helps when it's like one syllable. And if it's like super long, you're like, I'm not sure what you just said. Yeah. But, um. Yeah, so that's how I got into accessible design. I like, you know, got into architecture because of parkour and because I wanted to design parkour spaces, but then like segued over to designing accessible spaces. But because I have those two overlaps Mm -hmm. and I've like dived into both those worlds, I'm like trying to find like how are they connected and is there meaning behind all that? And to be continued on how I figure that out. Yeah, it's not required that you have all the answers yeah this <laughs> certainly never my i have a lifetime practice. i think i think i'll i have plenty of time to figure it out but um so yeah it, it's it's been quite a roller coaster and and that's why i got into the nonprofit that i'm in right now world deaf architecture which is really a nonprofit where we're trying to like help like deaf and hard of hearing architects in the profession 
because like we really struggle with like finding work. It's getting better, but like, you know, it, it's it's hard to like, you know, get access to like information and resources and materials, especially when they're like only provided on like 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 YouTube videos that don't have captions or whatever. You know, it's like it's not as accessible to us, so therefore we're mm. like inherently at a disadvantage. And another thing I wanted to bring up too is like I see that happening in the parkour communities too. Like I was like, why aren't there more deaf people in like parkour? And I'm, it's not like there's a bunch of us, you know, like there, there, there are a lot of I deaf people no in idea. the world, but like, it's really hard to like get a number of like how many, like, well, like I would have, sorry, it <laughs> just to be like, you know, what's going on. I'm picking at my hearing aid because sometimes your ears itch, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> which means I have to take half a headphone off. So it's like, I'm momentarily left the room. <laughs> I have no idea how many people, like what percentage of the population would have which kinds of hearing loss mm-hmm. challenges. Because if you'd asked me that for 20 years, I'd have been like, no, my hearing's fine. Like, because if you don't know, well, you can't even self-identify, let alone you right. know, report so people can count. I um, didn't even know for the first five years of my life that I had hearing loss until someone was like, hey, you, you failed this test. You have hearing loss. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't really think about that. I don't think it's gotten any worse. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, this is what normal people hear. Yeah. 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 yeah so that was like, you know, a, a very interesting thing. And so like with the parkour community, like I'm wondering like, why aren't there more deaf people? And it's not like that answer is very clear, but I'm like, well, if, if you look back at the history of parkour with like how it started, a lot of it was like through YouTube and like tutorials and all that stuff. And like that, and a lot of people were self-taught through that but like you know a lot of these tutorials are like through like spoken language voiceover while somebody is showing how to do a safety roll i've seen that one a million times you know yes. it's like complete like because they go out and it's like i don't mean this negatively low budget so they set the camera up i do a bunch of safety rolls with you know field recording sound then i cut the audio out and then i say okay now do a safety roll you tuck your arms and Mm-hmm. Hey, mm-hmm. that's cool all i see is a guy doing a roll over and over and over like is that the good one or the bad one right yeah, exactly a lot of voiceover and i mean a, a lot of the artistic part of the sport the sound is i was gonna say better often muted but you, if you mute it you don't lose the, the you know the visual part of it it's not like if you don't hear them sticking the landing you're missing something really Right, right. I think, I'm trying to remember, I, I started parkour, I hadn't really thought this stuff through. I started parkour before I got hearing aids. And I think it was a real, I almost said jump in my training, sorry. Mm-hmm. Real jump in my training when I, like, I went to a class with hearing aids. I was like, oh, that, that made me cry. Because I was like, damn, I'm making a lot of noise. <laughs> like I, oh, yeah. Because you know, you're like, oh, boy. You know, like, it's like a six on the Richter scale over here. And oh, I yeah. think that that really... I never, maybe not until just like two seconds ago, I never really realized how much of a disadvantage that was in training to not have that feedback. I mean, yeah, when the coach is giving instruction, I have trouble hearing, okay, that's annoying. But I can tell the coach is giving instruction. Everybody else is looking at that person. I guess I'm missing something. Like I had a visual cue. Yeah, But yeah. when they say like, go make sure your jumps are quiet, I'm like, you know, yeah, it's quiet. You know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear it, you know. So that was a, a real interesting you know, like having the gauze pulled off my eyes kind of thing to suddenly be able to get that input in that channel that I've been missing before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I've talked to a couple people about like, oh, like if you were to have like a deaf student in your class, like how would you teach them? Like spontaneously, like what would you do? And some people are like, oh, well, we do silent training anyway. So I would just <laughs> do silent training the entire mm-hmm. time. And I'm like, well, what if you they had a really technical question? 
how would you explain that to them? And they're like, um, I don't know. And it's like, it, it gets more complicated than that. And so I feel like, you know, with the, with the deaf community, like parkour, it'd be really great if like parkour could, I mean, personally for me, I think it'd be really great if parkour could reach into the deaf communities because they're really tight knit. And I think it'd be really interesting to see like how parkour would be affected by mm. like incorporating like deaf people and their experiences into movement. Because a lot of it is really relied on like hearing our landings and all that stuff. It's, there's this auditory element, but like, there's a lot of things that you can gain by removing a sense. I mean, that's why we have all these different types of like movement workshops and, yeah. and like, um, eyes closed drills, games. And, right, yeah. silent training. Exactly. It's like when you remove a certain element from your training, it forces you to rely on other parts of your senses and, and it forces you to be creative. And so like, what is it like for, you know, deaf people to experience like parkour and, I can answer that question, but it'd be really great to like have discussions with See other people. See yeah. And so I think what this really means is like in, in parkour, like I see, I, th- I see a lot of people like teaching like people with disabilities, but I think understanding their culture and where they come from is also really important so that like that can be incorporated into parkour because it, Parkour is ever growing. And I think it's constantly being redefined based on like people's experiences and how they like, you know, add what they know to their movement. Yeah. And that's because like when you see like people really learning or not learning, um, like doing new movements in like parkour videos, it's because it's they're taking something that they know and is comfortable with themselves and applying it to parkour. And that's where like the creativity comes from a lot of the times, I think. So I think that there's a lot to gain. That's what makes it art. I was just thinking like, you know, if you take that thought a little bit further, then that's what makes what you are, what that person you were just describing who took what they were comfortable with and added it to their parkour, that's them making art of it because you're pushing the boundaries of what the parkour can be. Mm-hmm. Just to use your own words, like that's actually an excellent, that's you're circled back there. Again. Exactly. And so here's the next like interesting thing that I'm trying to investigate with my like trifecta. And that's, you know, people with disabilities are constantly navigating their environment that's never built for them. And yeah. so, like, they constantly have to adapt on a daily basis to, like, different roadblocks. Literal roadblocks and, like, other types of, like, barriers. Why is that that way? You know, like, when you figure it out, you're like, well, <laughs> right. oh, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. And there was a YouTube video of uh, a guy with cerebral palsy who's in a wheelchair. And he was like, I want to go get a donut at this particular shop. And it took him three hours to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn to get there because there, there it was... Most of like the usual like route that like Google Maps would like tell you to go is so inaccessible that like he had to find it took him three hours to figure out how to get there in an accessible way. way. But he had to like be creative and, and find a new way to get to that space. And parkour is the same way where it's like, well, I'm getting from point A to point B in the most efficient way using my body. So what does that look like for me? Hmm. So like in a way, people with disabilities are like Better always at it. Than they're we are. like constantly doing parkour because they live in an environment that's not built for them, and so like they're constantly always having to go through 
um, like breaking through barriers or finding alternative routes that are better for them and going over their fear aspect. I was just going to say making choices about like, yeah, no, that's not worth it. Don't you know, like there's the, I don't, there's no way to get over there. I like, or, or, well, I really think this is important. I'm going to work on this one piece of it. And then I'll come back tomorrow making those decisions about those value judgments about, is this challenge worth the reward? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. So like, I think that there's, it's very interesting how, you know, looking at like, parkour and people with disabilities and it's like i'm not saying that they're the ultimate like tressors but like they really take the elements of like what like defines parkour and like the the boundaries that they have and they're constantly pushing it like because they have to whereas like parkour it's like we do it because we can and we want to yeah i was debating and i left the pause in case we decided to cut it out I, long ago in a previous life, not that long ago, I used to teach Aikido. And we had a school that was opening and, um, you know, a bunch of people showed up. And the local college had a club that was affiliated with our same organization. So the club came over. And I don't know what prompted this, but they brought a bunch of people, not a bunch, like a handful of people from the school who hadn't been practicing before. So they brought just some day one, you know, what is this? How does this work? And one of them was completely blind. And I was like, okay, this is interesting because a lot of what you do in that martial art is not, doesn't start with contact. Like if you're doing grappling or jujitsu parts about it, I'll tell you what, people who are blind are really good at that stuff because they have a sense of touch and they can feel exactly what's going on with your weight and shifts. Um, so this blind student was working with one of our students and things were not going well. I could just see, you know, because the blind student, there's, there's like, you can't go that far to the left because there's no more mat or there's, you know, there's safety issues or how was he going to not run into this other person? Mm-hmm. Um, and I walked over and I don't know what prompted me to do this because it's exactly the right thing to do, which is not usually what I do by instinct. I said, what can we do to help you so that you can experience what we're doing, which is exactly the right thing to ask somebody who, who is struggling because like, shut up and see what they have to say. And I forget what the young man's name was, but he asked me if he could, if he could follow me. So he's like, can you do, I don't even remember what we're doing. Can you do the thing that we're doing, but I'm going to touch you. So it was, he stood behind me and basically it was like a reverse of a marionette. So he like put, first he started with like, he put a foot against my foot so he could see where my feet were, but basically like feeling out where I was. But it turns out like a, a lot of Aikido is about where you put your weight and how you move your hips and like a slight shift in where your pelvis is oriented is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who picks that stuff really good? The guy who's got like one fingertip on the top of your ilium. So like he would just maintain like one finger on a hip bone and like another finger on an elbow. And I did it like twice and he had it. And I was just like, you know what? you're actually better at that. <laughs> I, I said like, quietly, like you're actually better at that than a lot of the students who train on a regular basis because he didn't, my, my guess is he didn't throw away any information. Like somebody who can mm-hmm. visually see that whole, you know, maybe they see, oh, they see the pants, I think. But this person was like, well, I need to know what this, what Craig is doing. So I'm going to like, where's his center? Oh, it's right here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep track of his hips. And then I'm going to feel what he's doing with his arms. And then I, I said like, you know, I think he said something about, well, first was 
what's the space I'm in? I said, oh, you have infinite ceiling. Like you can swing a stick over your head. There's nothing you can wrap your head on anywhere in here. There's no poke hazards. And the floor is sewn together from strips of canvas. And he was like, what? I said, if you, you know, just with a the foot, then he realized there were, you know, he knew there were seams. He didn't realize they were symmetrical. I said, oh no, the seams are straight lines. They're spaced, whatever they are, two and a half feet apart. There's a grid. And when you get, I said, if you're paying close attention, there's a set of tiles underneath that are foam that are three by five that don't match the things. So you can basically measure five feet by three feet by seam in the floor under the thing, canvas. He like walked around in a quick, like, and it was like, aha, best like proprioceptive sense of where he was. It was like, it, it went from being like, if you want to imagine just closing your eyes and trying to walk around in your own living room, you know where everything is, but you're still going to slow down because shinjuries hurt, right? Yeah, he went. Absolutely. He went from like, yeah, I know it's kind of safe, but I'm not 100% sure. To he was just like flying around his little corner that, you know, was the space where they were working. And to me, that was a real eye opener of like looking, like looking back. I now see like, oh, that was a real moment there where I had the opportunity to experience something that there's no way I could have experienced. Like there's no way I could experience what it would be like to fully use tactile information. I'm never going to have that because I have other senses and unless I spend a ton of time working on it. And to him, it was just like, oh, I mean, there's like, I can feel the floor, but you mean that because we're barefoot. There's like lots of information here on the floor and it's structured. Mm -hmm. And like, once, I mean, he could have figured it out. But, you know, once I said it's like this, it was just like, oh, you know, ability unlocked. Oh, you can do this. And everybody else was showing him they were like asking him to grab them to be like the receiver of the technique, mm -hmm. which he probably could have reverse engineered what was going on the other side. But when he said, can I touch you? And I'm like, sure. And it was just like, oh, yes, this is what he's supposed to do here. Ride along kind of thing. Um, so just that, that was something that I, that lesson of like, just ask, I, I use that a lot. And I, I mean, I said, well, here's the question I'm really thinking. Like, I just asked the question, what's going on over there? What is this person doing? Why are you doing that? How mm -hmm. did you get up there? Like, just ask those questions and then listen <laughs> to the answers. But, um, that was something that really surprised me it was one, uh, you know, a situation where I encountered somebody uh, who was visually impaired. I think he was completely blind. Um, and it was just, I almost said it. It's a real eye opener for me to discover that. Sorry, <laughs> turn of the phrase. It's, but that's <laughs> it's, it's ironic, but um, yeah, that's a really great story. And it really does show like all you have to really do is just ask like, what do you need? And then they, they'll just tell you because like they know their experience better than anyone else. And like, you know, everyone's disability, like, you know, you and I both have hearing loss, but they're at different levels. So like our needs may be different. So just asking like, hey, what do you need in order to like make X, Y, Z thing work? And then they tell you, and you're like, oh, okay, now I can accommodate that. It's, it's actually really that simple, but like people are like, just don't think to ask sometimes. And so, and, and then when you do that, like their powers were unlocked pretty much. It's like, <laughs> he didn't need much help. <laughs> he just needed basic <laughs> instruction. Like everybody else in the class needed some basic instruction, but didn't need a lot. Yeah. Like he just needed different information yeah, different than everyone media. else. So, Yeah. And I mean, like, just like how we have, like, our ability to lip read and all that stuff. It's like we gain these different types. I like to call them superpowers. <laughs> like, we gain these different types of superpowers by having, like, these certain senses, like, shift. I wouldn't necessarily call them, like, a loss because it's like, yes, it's a loss in some way. But at the same time, we're gaining other things. Yeah. And so it's like understanding like, what that's like and then how to utilize that to, I like, benefit concerts, ourselves. People stick earplugs in at concerts. I'm like. I don't need to do that. Yeah. I come pre-built with earplugs. I just take my hearing aids <laughs> out. I'm not going to amplify this stuff. I take it out. This Organic awesome. earplugs. I love it. It's great. Yeah. If you can have a billboard anywhere in the world, although New York City is an obvious choice, w with just words on it, 
what would what would the message be? Well, if it's anywhere in the world, and that would be great. And I think, um, you know, my my favorite message to give people is the things that make you strange are the things that make you powerful. That's a good message. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. So the three words that I would use to describe my practice would be adaptability, because you always have to adapt to your environment and the things that life throws at you. And then the second one would be uh, understandings, because you always have to understand everyone's experiences. Everyone's going to have different experiences in you. And I think really seeing what they are is important. And then the last one, and I don't know why, but I want to say it would be gentle. I think that, you know, the world is, there's so many things that could be harsh in the world, but I think if we could be a little bit more gentle, that would be great. You know, just like taking things more at a gentle pace. And also because I'm taking homage back to when I used to do judo and judo Mm. is the gentle way. Yes. So those would be my three words. Outstanding. Yeah, those are three great words. It never ceases to amaze me the awesomeness that people come up with when I ask them for three words to describe their practice. They come up with three things that invariably relate back to what they've been talking about. And uh, yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. I'm so happy yeah, thank that you we for having me. took the time to like wait through COVID and get here when we had time. It's great. It was everything I hoped it would be. Yeah. This has been a really great conversation and you know, I've always really loved your podcast, so I'm glad thank I you. can finally be here. Glad to find people that enjoy it. That's, you know, meant to be for each listener individually, not like, I hope a million people listen. All right, I'm going to stop talking and say thanks again. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye.